Chapter Four, Part Two of Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joel Peebles. Arcadian Adventures with the Idle Rich by Stephen Leacock. Chapter Four: The Yahibahi Oriental Society of Mrs. Rasselyer Brown. Part Two. The large dining-room at the Rasselier Browns had been cleared out as a sort of auditorium, and in it some fifty or sixty of Mrs. Rasselier Brown's more intimate friends had gathered. The whole meeting was composed of ladies, except for the presence of one or two men who represented special cases. There was, of course, little Mr. Spillikins, with his vacuous face and football hair, who was there, as everybody knew, on account of Dulphemia and there was old Judge Longerstill, who sat leaning on a gold-headed stick with his head sideways, trying to hear some fraction of what was being said. He came to the gathering in the hope that it would prove a likely place for seconding a vote of thanks and saying a few words, half an hour's talk, perhaps, on the Constitution of the United States. Failing that, he felt sure that at least someone would call him this eminent old gentleman, and even that was better than staying at home but for the most part the audience was composed of women, and they sat in a little buzz of conversation waiting for Mr. Yahibahi. "'I wonder,' called Mrs. Bumkenhurst from the chair, "'if some lady would be good enough to write minutes. Miss Snagg, I wonder if you would be kind enough to write minutes. Could you?' "'I shall be delighted,' said Miss Snagg, "'but I'm afraid there's hardly time to write them before we begin, is there?' "'Oh, but it would be all right to write them afterwards,' chorused several ladies who understood such things. "'It's quite often done that way.' "'And I should like to move that we vote a constitution,' said a stout lady with a double eyeglass. "'Is that carried?' said Mrs. Bumkenhurst. "'All those in favor, please signify.' Nobody stirred. "'Carried,' said the President. "'And perhaps you would be good enough, Mrs. Feisch, she said, turning towards the stout lady.' to write the Constitution? Do you think it necessary to write it? said Mrs. Feisch. I should like to move, if I may, that I almost wonder whether it is necessary to write the Constitution, unless, of course, anybody thinks that we really ought to. Ladies, said the President, you have heard the motion. All those against it, there was no sign. All those in favor of it, there was still no sign. Lost, she said. Then, looking across at the clock on the mantelpiece, and realizing that Mr. Yahibahi must have been delayed, and that something must be done, she said, "'And now, ladies, as we have in our midst a most eminent gentleman, who probably has thought more deeply about constitutions than—' All eyes turned at once towards Judge Longerstill, but as fortune had it at this very moment, Mr. Sickley Snoop entered, followed by Mr. Yahibahi and Mr. Ram Spud. Mr. Yahibahi was tall. His drooping oriental costume made him taller still. He had a long brown face and liquid brown eyes of such depth that when he turned them full upon the ladies before him, a shiver of interest and apprehension followed in the track of his glance. "'My dear,' said Miss Snagg afterwards, "'he seems simply to see right through us.' This was correct. He did. Mr. Ram Spud presented a contrast to his superior— he was short and round, with a dimpled mahogany face and eyes that twinkled in it like little puddles of molasses. His head was bound in a turban, and his body was swathed in so many bands and sashes that he looked almost circular. 
the clothes of both mr yahi bahi and ram spud were covered with the mystic signs of buddha and the seven serpents of vishnu it was impossible of course for mr yahi bahi or mr ram spud to address the audience their knowledge of english was known to be too slight for that their communications were expressed entirely through the medium of mr snoop and even he explained afterwards that it was very difficult the only languages of india which he was able to speak he said with any fluency were gargamic and gumaic both of these being old dravidian dialects with only two hundred and three words in each and hence in themselves very difficult to converse in mr yahi bahi answered in what mr snoop understood to be the iramic of the vedas a very rich language but one which unfortunately he did not understand the dilemma is one familiar to all oriental scholars all of this mr snoop explained in the opening speech which he proceeded to make and after this he went on to disclose amid deep interest the general nature of the cult of boohooism he said that they could best understand it if he told them that its central doctrine was that of bahi indeed the first aim of all followers of the cult was to attain to bahi anybody who could spend a certain number of hours each day say sixteen in silent meditation on boohooism would find his mind gradually reaching a condition of bahi the chief aim of bahi itself was sacrifice a true follower of the cult must be willing to sacrifice his friends or his relatives and even strangers in order to reach bahi in this way one was able fully to realize oneself and enter into the higher indifference beyond this further meditation and fasting by which was meant living solely on fish fruit wine and meat one presently attained to complete swaraj or control of self and might in time pass into the absolute nirvana or the negation of emptiness the supreme goal of boohooism as a first step to all this mr snoop explained each neophyte or candidate for holiness must after searching his own heart send ten dollars to mr yahi bahi gold it appeared was recognized in the cult of boohooism as typifying the three chief virtues whereas silver or paper money did not even national banknotes were only regarded as due or a halfway palliation and outside currencies such as canadian or mexican bills were looked upon as entirely boo or contemptible the oriental view of money said mr snoop was far superior to our own but it also might be attained by deep thought and as a beginning by sending ten dollars to mr yahi bahi after this mr snoop in conclusion read a very beautiful hindu poem translating it as he went along it began o cow standing beside the ganges and apparently without visible occupation and it was voted exquisite by all who heard it the absence of rhyme and the entire removal of ideas marked it as far beyond anything reached as yet by occidental culture when mr snoop had concluded the president called upon judge longer still for a few words of thanks which he gave followed by a brief talk on the constitution of the united states after this the society was declared constituted mr yahi bahi made four salams one to each point of the compass and the meeting dispersed and that evening over fifty dinner-tables everybody discussed the nature of bahi and tried in vain to explain it to men too stupid to understand now it so happened that on the very afternoon of this meeting at mrs rasselyer brown's the philippine chauffeur did a strange and peculiar thing 
he first asked mr rasselyer brown for a few hours leave of absence to attend the funeral of his mother-in-law this was a request which mr rasselyer brown on principle never refused to a manservant whereupon the philippine chauffeur no longer attired as one visited the residence of mr yahi-bahi he let himself in with a marvelous little key which he produced from a very wonderful bunch of such he was in the house for nearly half an hour, and when he emerged, the notebook in his breast pocket, had there been an eye to read it, would have been seen to be filled with stranger details in regard to Oriental mysticism than even Mr. Yahibahi had given the world. So strange were they that, before the Philippine chauffeur returned to the Rasselier Brown residence, he telegraphed certain and sundry parts of them to New York but why he should have addressed them to the head of a detective bureau instead of to a college of oriental research it passes the imagination to conceive but as the chauffeur duly reappeared at motor time in the evening the incident passed unnoticed it is beyond the scope of the present narrative to trace the progress of boohooism during the splendid but brief career of the yahi-bahi oriental society there could be no doubt of its success its principles appealed with great strength to all the more cultivated among the ladies of Plutoria Avenue. There was something in the Oriental mysticism of its doctrines which rendered previous belief stale and puerile. The practice of the sacred rites began at once. The ladies' counters of the Plutorian banks were inundated with requests for ten-dollar pieces in exchange for banknotes. At dinner in the best houses nothing was eaten except a thin soup or brew, followed by fish, succeeded by meat or by game, especially such birds as are particularly pleasing to Buddha, as the partridge, the pheasant, and the woodcock. After this, except for fruits and wine, the principle of swaraj, or denial of self, was rigidly imposed. Special oriental dinners of this sort were given, followed by listening to the reading of oriental poetry, with closed eyes and with the mind as far as possible in a state of stage or negation of thought by this means the general doctrine of boohooism spread rapidly indeed a great many of the members of the society soon attained to a stage of bahi or the higher indifference that it would have been hard to equal outside of jagapur or jambambadbad for example when mrs bumkenhurst learned of the remarriage of her second husband she had lost him three years before owing to a difference of opinion on the emancipation of women she showed the most complete bahi possible and when miss snagg learned that her brother in venezuela had died a very sudden death brought on by drinking rum for seventeen years and had left her ten thousand dollars the bahi which she exhibited almost amounted to nirvana in fact, the very general dissemination of the Oriental idea became more and more noticeable with each week that passed. Some members attained to so complete a bahi or higher indifference that they even ceased to attend the meetings of the society. Others reached a swaraj or control of self so great that they no longer read its pamphlets, while others again actually passed into nirvana to a complete negation of self so rapidly that they did not even pay their subscriptions but features of this sort of course are familiar wherever a successful occult creed makes its way against the prejudices of the multitude the really notable part of the whole experience was the marvelous demonstration of occult power which attended the final seance of the society the true nature of which is still wrapped in mystery
For some weeks it had been rumored that a very special feat or demonstration of power by Mr. Yahi-Bahi was under contemplation. In fact, the rapid spread of Swaraj and of Nirvana among the members rendered such a feat highly desirable. Just what form the demonstration would take was for some time a matter of doubt. It was whispered at first that Mr. Yahi-Bahi would attempt the mysterious eastern rite of burying Ram Spud alive in the garden of the Rasselyer Brown residence and leaving him there in a state of stage or suspended inanition for eight days. But this project was abandoned, owing to some doubt, apparently in the mind of Mr. Ram Spud, as to his astral fitness for the high state of stage necessitated by the experiment. At last it became known to the members of the Poosh, or inner circle, under the seal of confidence, that Mr. Yahibahi would attempt nothing less than the supreme feat of occultism, namely a reincarnation, or more correctly, a reastralization of Buddha. The members of the inner circle shivered with a luxurious sense of mystery when they heard of it. "'Has it ever been done before?' they asked of Mr. Snoop. "'Only a few times,' he said. Once, I believe, by Jam Bum, the famous yogi of the Carnatic. Once, perhaps twice, by Boohoo, the founder of the sect. But it is looked upon as extremely rare. Mr. Yahi tells me that the great danger is that if the slightest part of the formula is incorrectly observed, the person attempting the astralization is swallowed up into nothingness. However, he declares himself willing to try. The seance was to take place at Mrs. Rasselyer Brown's residence, and was to be at midnight. At midnight, said each member in surprise, and the answer was, yes, at midnight. You see, midnight here is exactly midday in Allahabad in India. This explanation was, of course, ample. Midnight, repeated everybody to everybody else, is exactly midday in Allahabad. That made things perfectly clear. Whereas, if midnight had been midday in Timbuktu, the whole situation would have been different. Each of the ladies was requested to bring to the seance some ornament of gold, but it must be plain gold, without any setting of stones. It was known already that, according to the cult of Boohooism, gold, plain gold, is the seat of the three virtues, beauty, wisdom, and grace. Therefore, according to the creed of Boohooism, anyone who has enough gold plain gold, is endowed with these virtues, and is all right. All that is needed is to have enough of it. The virtues follow as a consequence. But for the great experiment the gold used must not be set with stones, with the one exception of rubies, which are known to be endowed with the three attributes of Hindu worship, modesty, loquacity, and pomposity. In the present case, it was found that as a number of ladies had nothing but gold ornaments set with diamonds, a second exception was made, especially as Mr. Yahibahi, on appeal, decided that diamonds, though less pleasing to Buddha than rubies, possessed the secondary Hindu virtues of divisibility, movability, and disposability. On the evening in question, the residence of Mrs. Rasselier Brown might have been observed at midnight wrapped in utter darkness no lights were shown. A single taper brought by Ram Spud from the Taj Mahal, and resembling in its outer texture those sold at the five and ten store near Mr. Spud's residence, burned on a small table in the vast dining room. The servants had been sent upstairs and expressly enjoined to retire at half-past ten. 
Moreover, Mr. Rasselyer-Brown had had to attend that evening at the Mausoleum Club, a meeting of the trustees of the Church of St. Asaph, and he had come home at eleven o'clock, as he always did after diocesan work of this sort, quite used up, in fact so fatigued that he had gone upstairs to his own suite of rooms sideways, his knees bending under him, so utterly used up was he with his church work that, as far as any interest in what might be going on in his own residence, he had attained to a state of bahi, or higher indifference, that even Buddha might have envied. The guests, as had been arranged, arrived noiselessly and on foot. All motors were left at least a block away. They made their way up the steps of the darkened house and were admitted without ringing, the door opening silently in front of them. Mr. Yahibahi and Mr. Ram Spud, who had arrived on foot carrying a large parcel, were already there and were behind a screen in the darkened room, reported to be in meditation. At a whispered word from Mr. Snoop, who did duty at the door, all furs and wraps were discarded in the hall and laid in a pile. Then the guests passed silently into the great dining-room. There was no light in it except the dim taper, which stood on a little table. On this table each guest, as instructed, laid an ornament of gold, and at the same time was uttered in a low voice the word, Kusfu. This means, O Buddha, I herewith lay my unworthy offering at thy feet. Take it and keep it forever. It was explained that this was only a form. What is he doing? whispered the assembled guests as they saw Mr. Yahibahi pass across the darkened room and stand in front of the sideboard. Hush, said Mr. Snoop. He's laying the propitiatory offering for Buddha. It's an Indian rite, whispered Mrs. Rasselyer Brown. Mr. Yahibahi could be seen dimly moving to and fro in front of the sideboard. There was a faint clinking of glass. He has to set out a glass of Burmese brandy, powdered over with nutmeg and aromatics, whispered Mrs. Rasselyer Brown. I had the greatest hunt to get it all for him. He said that nothing but Burmese brandy would do, because in the Hindu religion the god can only be invoked with Burmese brandy, or, failing that, Hennessy's with three stars, which is not entirely displeasing to Buddha. The aromatics, whispered Mr. Snoop, are supposed to waft a perfume or incense to reach the nostrils of the god. The glass of propitiatory wine and the aromatic spices are mentioned in the Vishnu Buddhayat. Mr. Yahibahi, his preparations completed, was now seen to stand in front of the sideboard, bowing deeply four times in an oriental salam. The light of the single taper had by this time burned so dim that his movements were vague and uncertain. His body cast great flickering shadows on the half-seen wall. From his throat there issued a low wail in which the word wah-wah could be distinguished. The excitement was intense. "'What does wah mean?' whispered Mr. Spillikins. "'Hush,' said Mr. Snoop. "'It means, O Buddha, wherever thou art in thy lofty nirvana, "'descend yet once in astral form before our eyes.' "'Mr. Yahibahi rose. "'He was seen to place one finger on his lips, "'and then, silently moving across the room, "'he disappeared behind the screen. "'Of what Mr. Ram Spud was doing during this period "'there is no record.' It was presumed that he was still praying. The stillness was now absolute. 
"'We must wait in perfect silence,' whispered Mr. Snoop from the extreme tips of his lips. Everybody sat in strained intensity, silent, looking towards the vague outline of the sideboard. The minutes passed. No one moved. All were spellbound in expectancy. Still the minutes passed. The taper had flickered down till the great room was almost in darkness. Could it be that by some neglect in the preparations, the substitution, perhaps, of the wrong brandy, the astralization could not be effected? But no. Quite suddenly, it seemed, everybody in the darkened room was aware of a presence. That was the word, as afterwards repeated in a hundred confidential discussions, a presence. One couldn't call it a body, it wasn't. It was a figure, an astral form, a presence. Buddha, they gasped as they looked at it. Just how the figure entered the room, the spectators could never afterwards agree. Some thought it appeared through the wall, deliberately astralizing itself as it passed through the bricks. Others seemed to have seen it pass in at the farther door of the room, as if it had astralized itself at the foot of the stairs in the back of the hall outside. Be that as it may, there it stood before them, the astralized shape of the Indian deity, so that to every lip there rose the half-articulated word, Buddha, or at least to every lip except that of Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown. From her there came no sound. The figure, as afterwards described, was attired in a long chirac, such as is worn by the Grand Lama of Tibet, and resembling, if the comparison were not profane, a modern dressing-gown. The legs, if one might so call them, of the apparition were enwrapped in loose pajamas, a word which is said to be the origin of the modern pajamas, while the feet, if they were feet, were encased in loose slippers. Buddha moved slowly across the room. Arrived at the sideboard, the astral figure paused, and even in the uncertain light Buddha was seen to raise and drink the propitiatory offering. That much was perfectly clear. Whether Buddha spoke or not is doubtful. Certain of the spectators thought that he said, Must have forgotten it, which is Hindustani for blessings on this house. To Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown's distracted mind, it seemed as if Buddha said, I must have forgotten it. But this wild fancy she never breathed to a soul. Silently, Buddha recrossed the room, slowly wiping one arm across his mouth after the Hindu gesture of farewell. For perhaps a full minute after the disappearance of Buddha, not a soul moved. Then, quite suddenly, Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown, unable to stand the tension any longer, pressed an electric switch, and the whole room was flooded with light. There sat the affrighted guests, staring at one another with pale faces. But to the amazement and horror of all, the little table in the center stood empty. Not a single gem, not a fraction of the gold that had laid upon it was left. All had disappeared. The truth seemed to burst upon everyone at once. There was no doubt of what had happened. The gold and the jewels had been deastralized. Under the occult power of the vision they had been demonetized, engulfed into the astral plane along with the vanishing Buddha. Filled with the sense of horror still to come, somebody pulled aside the little screen. They fully expected to find the lifeless bodies of Mr. Yahibahi and the faithful Ram Spud. What they saw before them was more dreadful still. The outer oriental garments of the two devotees lay strewn upon the floor. The long sash of Mr. Yahibahi and the thick turban of Ram Spud were side by side near them. 
almost sickening in its repulsive realism was the thick black head of hair of the junior devotee apparently torn from his scalp as if by lightning and bearing a horrible resemblance to the cast-off wig of an actor the truth was too plain they are engulfed cried a dozen voices at once it was realized in a flash that yahibahi and ram spud had paid the penalty of their daring with their lives through some fatal neglect, against which they had fairly warned the participants of the séance, the two Orientals had been carried bodily in the astral plane. "'How dreadful!' murmured Mr. Snoop. "'We must have made some awful error.' "'Are they deastralized?' murmured Mrs. Buncomhurst. "'Not a doubt of it,' said Mr. Snoop. And then another voice in the group was heard to say, "'We must hush it up. We can't have it known.' on which a chorus of voices joined in, everybody urging that it must be hushed up. "'Couldn't you try to re-astralize them?' said somebody to Mr. Snoop. "'No, no,' said Mr. Snoop, still shaking. "'Better not to try. "'We must hush it up if we can.' And the general assent to this sentiment showed that, after all, the principles of Bahi, or indifference to others, had taken a real root in the society. "'Hush it up!' cried everybody and there was a general move towards the hall. "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Mrs. Buncomhurst. "'Our raps!' "'De-astralized!' said the guests. There was a moment of further consternation as everybody gazed at the spot where the ill-fated pile of furs and wraps had lain. "'Never mind,' said everybody. "'Let's go without them. Don't stay. Just think if the police should—' And at the word police, all of a sudden there was heard in the street the clanging of a bell and the racing gallop of the horses of the police patrol wagon. "'The police!' cried everybody. "'Hush it up! Hush it up!' For, of course, the principles of Bahi are not known to the police. In another moment the doorbell of the house rang with a long and violent peal, and in a second, as it seemed, the whole hall was filled with bulky figures uniformed in blue. "'It's all right, Mrs. Rasselyer-Brown,' cried a loud, firm voice from the sidewalk. "'We have them both. Everything is here. We got them before they'd gone a block. But if you don't mind, the police must get a couple of names for witnesses in the warrant.' It was the Philippine chauffeur, but he was no longer attired as such. He wore the uniform of an inspector of police, and there was the metal badge of the detective department now ostentatiously outside his coat. And beside him, one on each side of him, there stood the de-astralized forms of Yahibahi and Ram Spud. They wore long overcoats, doubtless the contents of the magic parcels, and the Philippine chauffeur had a grip of iron on the neck of each as they stood. Mr. Spud had lost his oriental hair, and the face of Mr. Yahibahi, perhaps in the struggle which had taken place, had been scraped white in patches. They were making no attempt to break away. Indeed, Mr. Spud, with that complete bahi, or submission to fate, which is attained only by long services in state penitentiaries, was smiling and smoking a cigarette. "'We were waiting for them,' explained a tall police officer to the two or three ladies who now gathered round him with a return of courage. They had the stuff in a handcart and were pushing it away. The chief caught them at the corner and rang the patrol from there. "'You'll find everything all right, I think, ladies.' he added, as a burly assistant was seen carrying an armload of furs up the steps. Somehow many of the ladies realized at the moment what cheery, safe, reliable people policemen in blue are, and what a friendly, familiar shelter they offer against the wiles of oriental occultism. 
"'Are they old criminals?' someone asked. "'Yes, ma'am. They've worked the same thing in four cities already, "'and both of them have done time, and lots of it. "'They've only been out six months. "'No need to worry over them,' he concluded with a shrug of the shoulders. "'So the furs were restored, and the gold and the jewels parceled out among the owners, "'and in due course Mr. Yahibahi and Mr. Ram Spud were lifted up into the patrol wagon where they seated themselves with a composure worthy of the best traditions of Jahumbaba and Bahulapur. In fact, Mr. Spud was heard to address the police as boys, and to remark that they had got them good that time. So the seance ended, and the guests vanished, and the Yahibahi society terminated itself without even a vote of dissolution. And in all the later confidential discussions of the episode, only one point of mysticism remained after they had time really to reflect on it, free from all danger of arrest, the members of the society realized that on one point the police were entirely off the truth of things. For Mr. Yahibahi, whether a thief or not, and whether he came from the Orient or, as the police said, from Missouri, had actually succeeded in re-astralizing Buddha. Nor was anyone more emphatic on this point than Mrs. Rasselier Brown herself. For after all, she said, if it was not Buddha, who was it? And the question was never answered. End of chapter 4, part 2 Recording by Joelle Peebles